Hello and welcome to another edition of Proselytize or Apostatize. I'm your host, David Russell, and I'm here with my co-host, who's not a co-host, David Paulman and Mike Childs as well. Both these guys are are not uh, unfamiliar with the show. Um, so, guys, welcome. Thanks. Good to be back with another episode, Russell. Indeed. Yeah, man. So, you know, Mike, we haven't had you on in a while. So, you know, I wanted to reach out. I mean, we're doing a little Thanksgiving special, and and, you know, I wanted to ask uh, somebody that believes in evolution and somebody that believes in design, where the turkey came from, because we're so close to Turkey Day. And if I'm going to eat this turkey, I want to know where it comes from. So uh, we're going to have a, a debate on, you know, our audience can, can figure it out. It's going to be about evolution and stuff like that. And it's going to be different than how we do it normally. There's not going to be no formal, you know, discussion and, and formal debate style. We're just going to talk about it because both our guys here are not, I didn't give them enough time to prepare. So it's kind of more my fault. I just wanted them on because Mike's like the awesome, a very awesome uh, atheist guest that we've had on before. And, and I wanted him to speak on it. He spoke on uh, intelligent design with Travis Worth last time. And David, he wanted to, to talk about evolution again, because he, he looks like he's starting to get back into the whole id debate so uh real quick mike uh introduce yourself again to the guests that don't know you uh michael childs uh yes i am an atheist although i i feel it is important to point out that the discussion of evolution is not atheist centric uh in any sense of the of the word but uh atheists tend to lean more that direction because well what it does effectively contradict almost inherently is creationism, and that's a, that's a big part of it. But there's nothing inherently atheist about uh, evolution, and that's kind of where I'm going to – that's kind of more what I wanted to drive at uh, as my part of the discussion. We'll get into some other details, but uh, that's kind of where I'm, I'm at uh, in terms of uh, where I feel like this is going to go. Right on. So, so, Mike, I mean, do you know where the turkey comes from? Uh, you know, I mean uh... – I don't even know if you you celebrate Thanksgiving like we do, but <laughs> but do you know I, where the turkey comes from, my friend? Specifically and succinctly, no. Um, <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's the short answer. That's okay, man. So so, David, <laughs> what prompted you to uh, want to talk about evolution again? Tell me a little bit about this journey that you're on. Um. Well, I, I'm just. You know, you guys contact me, and I, uh, I'm just that I any opportunity I have to get in on the conversation, I, I like to uh, more often for myself, but also to try and uh, spread as much information as I can, um, as well as to keep my chops fresh in, in terms of discussion and debate. I don't often get to do it live. I'm uh, I'm more often on Facebook doing it in text, which is a totally different animal. You know, you get time to, like, look things up and type and delete and things like that. <laughs> edit, edit, edit. Right, right. Uh, I'm going to turn it to David real quick. Um, Paulman, uh, you were on uh, uh, The Gospel Truth yesterday, and I was on with Gary Habermas on Real Seekers. Uh, tell me what your debate was about. I, I listened to it. I know what it's about, but I just tell us for the audience and, and tell us, you know, how it went for you. Yeah. Uh, me and Seth Bloomsburg, who has been on the show, were debating Calvinism, uh, which, you know, is something that I, for some reason, end up debating a lot. But, yeah, no, it was uh, specifically unconditional election, so the idea that God 
chooses who's going to be saved and that that choice has nothing to do with anything about you that was Seth's position and uh yeah I just think that that's obviously not what the Bible is teaching so that's uh yeah what we had a good battle over right on you are recording this right David Right on, man. So <laughs> I just had to make sure because I started it without telling you to record it. So, but anyways, uh, we're doing a little dual theme. So if you see a really cool background with like turkeys and and, and uh, our uh, thumbnail, then you got the right one. But if not, you're gonna see David's version. So we're not promising like the best quality here. We are doing some test runs uh, for OBS software so we can actually make our videos look even better. So uh, with that, uh, David, what what's getting you back into the ID discussion? Well, I think it's important, uh, and um, you know, I I want to modify my view on intelligent design to get a little more precise. Because when I did my video series on this, uh, oh goodness, over a year ago now. Um, I did a six-part video series on intelligent design, and some of the criticism I got on that is, uh, well, you know, you're not really precise on a lot of things. Like, what do you mean when, you know, you obviously disagree with universal common descent, but how far back do you think descent goes and stuff? And I was like, you know, that that's a good question, because um, I'm honestly willing to let descent go back as far as the evidence allows, but I don't think that the evidence offered... Uh, in support of a universal common descent, that that's very good. So I kind of want to get more precise in my own view, and so that just is going to require me to dig into the literature in this more. Right on, right on. So guys, like, where do you want to go with this with, with this uh, typical discussion? I, I first want to say happy Thanksgiving to all our guests. This is going to be the last episode we do until after uh, Thanksgiving. So I'm probably going to take a hiatus, and me and David are probably going to take a hiatus till December. Uh, and then we're going to come back on with PRA Raw with our critique of – the uh the video that we uh picked out for you guys last time so anyways yes. right yes sir uh but yeah so where do you guys want to go with this conversation david do you have any questions mike do you have any questions do you want to start i mean you guys can just uh take it from here in that aspect okay um i i'm sure i'll throw something out uh i guess my first question it's kind of always my first question whenever i i enter into this uh, debate is what what is your understanding of what evolution is because i find more often than not what people think they're talking about when they say evolution is not correct so that would be the first thing i would like to shore up and make sure we're on the same page yeah, great question, and that is important, too, because there are a lot of different definitions of it, and I don't even dispute all of them, so if we're just discussing... Uh, I'm sorry, can I time out real fast? You're paused on my screen, like you're frozen in one place. Uh, is that... Can you still hear me? I can hear you just fine. I, I was just hoping that that wasn't carrying through to the whole thing. Here. It's all good. It's all good. If it does, then we'll, we'll deal with it then. <laughs> Y'all can just talk. As long as you All can right. hear me. <laughs> Sorry about that. I can hear you just fine. So, yeah, if, uh, if, if you're good, then I'm good. All right, yeah. So uh, there are a lot of different definitions of evolution. And so, like I said, I don't dispute all of them. So if you just mean that biological organisms change over time, yeah, they do. Uh, and I don't think anyone almost, you know, m maybe put, like, the Ken Ham camp out in you know left field but most people are gonna agree that change over time happens 
Um, okay. But where I would disagree is uh, the idea that uh, – specifically common descent, so I don't think that all living organisms go back to a single common ancestor. I don't think that the evidence for that, uh, or I don't think the evidence offered for that is strong enough to establish that conclusion. And then uh, I also don't think that any presently known process, natural process, is sufficient to account for that level of change, even if you could establish that it happened. Hmm. So there's two parts here. There's the there's the historical aspect, and then there's the mechanistic aspect, right? There's the question of did this did this story happen at all, right? Is common descent true? That's the historical aspect. Now I could grant that. Uh, I don't, but I could grant that, and then still say I don't think we have a mechanism for that. So we don't have an evolutionary mechanism that can accomplish that, and so we need intelligent design along the way to guide that process, right? And so uh, I don't think you have the history in the first place. If you do have the history, you don't have the mechanism. So there, there are two issues there, but I dispute both. Well, in terms of natural evolution, uh, natural selection would be the mechanism. And that, that was Darwin's official theory. Just for the record, a lot of people don't seem to understand this, but there is no official theory of evolution. Uh, what we call evolutionary theory is actually a com uh, like a composite of multiple theories, like universal basic uh, or excuse me, universal common ancestry, natural selection, and so on. Um, and they're all kind of together. So, for the sake of, of brevity, we'll continue to call it the theory of evolution, uh, just to kind of shore things up. But I wanted to also uh, clarify that point. But uh, there, there's, I mean, evolution is. Uh, certainly, I'm glad to hear that you at least acknowledged that uh, biological change over time happens. That much is a fact, uh, and that is what we call evolution. Evolution is a fact, and that's what, you know, uh, I'm glad we don't have to go too far uh, into that. We can kind of skip past that. Um, but there's the, the mechanism, such as you call it, uh, there's natural selection, which is, uh, often misconstrued to be thought of as a deliberate process, which is funny because the deliberate process would be artificial selection. And that would be something like the breeding of dogs from wolves, for example, which is very much an evolutionary process. But, uh, and what you've seen from the change from dogs to, to or excuse me, from wolves to dogs uh, in the short period of time that we've domesticated them is a perfect example of an evolutionary process. And in that case artificial selection was the mechanism uh natural selection works a whole lot slower and um things like universal ba uh, common ancestry is pretty much proven to a to a certain extent it was even proven further not 10 years ago or so like to the point where arguing against it is almost like arguing against gravity as a theory so when you say there isn't a mechanism, I'm not sure what you mean exactly by that, because the, the mechanism is fairly well established. Okay, yeah, and so I agree that natural selection is, uh, that that happens. So you, uh, are you saying that that is the mechanism that accomplishes the change, natural selection? Among others, yeah. I mean, um, random mutation as part of natural selection is another part of the mechanism. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of it, but... Um, Okay. Yeah, natural natural selection would be the guiding mechanism for 
the diversity of life as we know it. Okay, yeah, because the, the response I was going to give to that uh, was that, obviously, natural selection, by the nature of what it is, it has to choose from what already existed, exists, so it's not creative. So you couldn't be saying that that alone was the mechanism that drives it. And so I'm glad you specified Well, how do you mean choose? Well, because it's a selection. So it's a selection, survival of the fittest, whatever it is. Ah, see, that's whatever. the misconception. See, that, that, that right there is the misconception I hear a lot. And it, it's not like... It's not like elephants decided one day that they were going to grow tusks and therefore and then they sent out, you know, over millions of years to continue growing tusks or the giraffe decided I really need my neck to be longer. So I'm going to grow my neck over a long period of time and therefore I can get to those trees. It's more of a it's kind of a misnomer in a way, because when you hear selection, you think. It's a deliberate act of selecting, but it's more like the way a giraffe's neck got longer was because the giraffes that had longer necks could reach higher and they survived longer. And the ones that had shorter necks and couldn't reach the higher food when there was not other food down lower died off. And so the, the genes for long necks continued to uh, pass down the line and over who knows how long a period of time they continued to get longer and longer and the ones with the longer necks just survived more. So that gene passed down. It wasn't a deliberate uh, decision to pass that gene down. See, see the difference? Oh, yeah, no, and I completely agree with that. I wasn't saying that it was deliberate. Uh, natural selection is, of course, a blind process. But what I'm saying is that uh, the selection of nature, and again, not a deliberate selection, that that happens from among options that already exist. Did we lose Michael? Oh, no, there he is. All right, sorry. Uh, all right, so, uh, yeah, so, as you were saying, right, that uh, people, or not people, but, um, you know, uh, the, the species with the longer necks, that that was passed down. But you, you notice that the species with the longer neck, that already existed, right? So Sort of. So, no, so, not, not, not necessarily. Well, so, I no. says, uh, so selection has to act on uh, already existing species. So natural selection itself can't tell you why there is a species. So there has to be something that's driving this process that accounts for why we have different species that can be chosen in the first place. And so that's, well, where, that's where mutation usually comes into the picture. No. Um, mutation helps that along. But what, what creates a different species and this is phylogenetically speaking, because modern taxonomy has kind of, you know, when you're talking about uh, Linnaean taxonomy has kind of been pushed aside for uh, modern cladistics. Um, when you're talking about what makes a species a different species, really just comes down to whether or not it can breed uh, with a, another form of the species. So, and things like we have what are called ring species that we have observed occurring in our lifetime and uh just something as simple as like different birds like say uh say, take darwin's finches for example uh, as an example and you would have like a group group of birds starts off and we'll call that group a and group a splits off and becomes group a and b and group a continues to live and group b now they're in a different setting so they change and they uh begin to evolve for their, their different settings, but it's not, you know, big changes or anything. And eventually they split off and they become a group C and a group D. And all of a sudden 
you know, here we have all these same birds, but then all of a sudden we get down to group F and F can no longer group, uh, mate with group A. And that's what's called ring species. And all of a sudden now we have a different species of bird, even though they were directly lineated from that original group. And that is, uh, you know, that, that is the short version of what can happen. But the, the larger changes that we see where something eventually becomes completely different creatures down the line over, you know, millions of years is a lot more um, dramatic. And, uh, you know, you're talking about tons of, you know, thousands upon thousands of different groups, delineating, separating, things like that. But that completely accounts for why uh, different species uh, are created, to, yeah. to, borrow, to borrow the term, created. Right, right. And you would say that mutation is the driving force for why there are different things that natural selection can choose from, right? Uh, no, no, not, not mutation. Uh, mutation is something different. Random mutation is something that occurs somewhat sporadically uh, and often doesn't really amount to anything. But every once in a while, it can make a significant change. But uh, it's more of an adaptation and just a genetic change. I mean, we can get into alleles and all that stuff, but I don't want to get too technical in a in what is supposed to be a casual conversation. But um, it, yeah, a mutation isn't the right word for what inevitably occurs over that long period of time. Okay, maybe it should maybe it would help if I um, disambiguate how I'm using the term mutation here. So I'm just talking about a change to the genetic code. So uh, any difference uh, that takes place that uh, would, you know, make my genetic code in some way uh, substantially different from that of my parents, then I'm saying that would be a mutation. And so that's something that natural selection then can act on and choose to preserve, right? Because if it's not mutation, then I'm curious, what is the driving force? What gives natural selection a selection at all? I, I, I thought I explained that. Um, it's right. You, it's you it's think, not. Well, it's like you use Darwin. Okay, well, okay. The answer to your question. The answer to that question is survivability is basically what gives them the selection. The the traits that best allow a species to survive are the ones that are going to carry down the line, and they will become more emphasized. Uh, particularly if that's the trait that is specifically what is allowing them to survive. So, you know, just, I mean, it, it could be damn near anything. I keep going to giraffes because it's the simplest one. Uh, the long necks, just because the ones with the longer necks got to eat more and, you know, they couldn't really, you know, animals, uh, I, I don't know what the sharing ability of giraffes is, but pretty much it comes down to, uh, if I can reach the food, then I'm going to live longer. And uh, I mean, it's you're you're talking about a long, long period of time. So many people. I'm not. I'm not saying you, but so many uh, times people seem to think that the, these changes occur in the span of a week, a month, a year. I mean, we're talking about thousands to millions of years of of constant adaptation, and they, you know, they they've been able to survive for that long, and so many don't. And that's the thing is that not every species gets to evolve because their species that are, are strongest couldn't quite get them to survive long enough. 
or their their uh, their settings changed so rapidly, like because of ice ages, things like that, uh, that they just couldn't do what they needed to survive for that period of time that they needed, and they become extinct. And that's what causes extinction. But the ones that do get to live had some kind of trait that allowed that uh, that ability. I mean, if you look at the the lives of penguins and what they go through to survive is pretty remarkable. I mean, they had to figure all that out, but they've been doing it for so long and it works for them. And the, and because it works for them, they keep doing it. And, uh, you know, I mean, they, they didn't just wake up one day and be like, you know, how about the men wants the eggs for now? And the, you know, the women will go off and do their thing. It's it, it was, you know, all these things were generally born out of necessity and, uh, Eventually it worked and they survived and they kept going, so they stuck with it. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Uh, but we've got, um, as you said before with Darwin's Finches, right, you would have group A and group B, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a survivable trait, right? So it has to have traits that are different from something else, right? That, that's what makes it selected because these traits are more make it more uh, are more conductive to its survivability right well, not necessarily i mean there are there are different species that are still different species that have the same things that allow them to survive uh, but so it, it's not it's not like these things are specifically geared just for that species like you know uh, god i'm i'm struggling to think of an example you know, gorillas, for example, are incredibly massively strong creatures. You know, they they have a, they because of the their uh, surroundings and the way that they eventually had to live, their their whole world became about brute strength. Meanwhile, their counterparts that broke off grew in intelligence because they didn't live in areas that were with trees and con surrounded by constant predators. You know where humans eventually broke off, and you know we became uh, a lot more uh, intelligent. Which uh, a lot of that came down to diet, uh, hundreds of thousands of years of eating bone marrow, things like that. Uh, just it, it, it all depends on all sorts of different things: uh, your environment, the the kinds of predators that you're you're living with and trying to survive, uh, food that you eat. All these things contribute to to what cause uh, your your evolutionary changes. Well, yeah, you know it's you know it's cool. I mean, yeah, gorillas are are strong. Have you guys seen King Kong? <laughs> like seriously, dude. If that's not a feat of evolution, I don't know what is. <laughs> Go ahead, David. Uh, let's let's give David a chance to respond here in kind. Right, right. And I want to say I don't think I'm disagreeing with you too much on that. So I, I want to say I think I think I'm in agreement with you on that. That um that uh you know your environment and uh, predators and such all of that is going to contribute to natural selection uh so okay. i'm agreeing with you that survivability right traits that are more conductive to your survivability these are the ones that natural selection chooses right all right but we need an explanation why do or why does one species have these traits and another one doesn't right there's got to be a driving force that gives that gives rise to these um to these survivability traits uh, there has to be an explanation for why one species has it and another one doesn't, right? Um, sort of. I mean, the 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 funny part is is that we have uh, just about every species has the genetic code for all the traits. 
uh, we're, we're talking about birds right now, for example. And if you look at uh, the, the genetic studies of birds have shown that they carry the uh, sub, uh, what is it, the subgenus markers for teeth. It's like, why would birds have the genetic information for teeth? It's because they either uh, had teeth and evolved out of having teeth, or it's just in there and it's kind of been turned off because of uh, where they were from. Now, we know to an extent that modern birds came from dinosaurs. And when you look at something like uh, raptors, for example, uh, they're the most prevalent option because there are still raptors today. Any of your any of your birds that you see that have talons and curved beaks, like your hawks, your eagles, your screech owls, and anything that has a beak that kind of curves down, they're all raptors, and they're all descended from raptors. The velociraptor, of course, is the most popular of the dinosaurs. But when you look at one, and this is one of the biggest problems with evolution and the misunderstandings of evolution is that Hollywood has bastardized it to uh, a massive extent. The raptors that you see in Jurassic Park don't look anything like the velociraptors are supposed to look like. And uh, they, they yeah. in fact, have, yeah. sorry? Yeah, I think I learned this weekend, Mike, that velociraptors, they didn't even call them velociraptors. That, like, they're only, like, three feet tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah they, they had feathers. They, they were probably quite colorful, in fact. Uh, but they did have teeth. Uh, at the time, taloned uh, feet, things like that. They were very vicious killers. That's one of the reasons why they were so popular. Uh, but yeah, they eventually split off and they became all of the other raptors. And you know, there's no denying that an owl and an eagle are two different species of birds, but they're still raptors. And they're, they're part of that sub subspecies, or the, excuse me, those are subspecies of that overall species that is the raptors and uh, it makes up all of them. And uh, you know, it, there, there's even some, uh, some speculation. I don't think it's been like officially proven, but there's a possibility that the T-Rex uh, eventually evolved into modern chickens. Uh, that again, is just kind of a neat speculation. I've seen the, the speculated uh, lineage uh, broken down, but I don't think it's been definitively proven, but it's kind of a neat thing to look at. But, uh, yeah, stuff like that. All right, yeah. So what I didn't hear was an explanation for why we have uh, these differences in the first place. What is it that is giving one species the survivability uh, that's being chosen by natural selection? Why does that one have it and another one doesn't? It's, it's going to be because of genetic Whoa. changes, right, that, that have happened in the genome. So one Or random chance. I mean, it, 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 you're, you're talking about some species are just born into an area that is more conducive to their survival and because they have a trait that works well for their environment. But another one is not going to have that trait, right? Right, yeah, some aren't, and so, they go extinct. So and why... many, many species go extinct. Why does the one species then have that trait? Why is it? What's the explanation for why this one has the trait that's being chosen? Luck of the draw. Okay, see, but here's the problem. Luck and chance, these aren't things that actually exist. Luck and chance are just words that we use to say, I don't know. So, well, sure. So, like, if I say uh, I'm rolling a die, right, and I got, oh, I rolled a six just by chance. 
Well, there really is an explanation for why I got uh, why I rolled a six, right? It's going to have to do with how I rolled it, how it hit the table. If we of can course. measure, if we can measure all that out, there's going to be an explanation there. But I would just say it's by chance because I don't I don't actually know what all those factors are. Yeah. If okay, much like when you'd roll a dice, if if we were able to examine the roll of the dice, and you could you you could examine like the way that it was thrown, the speed, and the the momentum that the dice carried and the surface that they roll on, we could examine all of that and figure out the cause of exactly why you roll the set. Right. Much to the same effect, if we could actually go and examine the, the species that were living in a particular environment and look, you know, go down their lineage and actually watch them, if we could do that too, we could see exactly which traits they had that carried through and we can kind of do that because we can look at the species that have survived all of this time and see you know the some some traits are more prominent than others uh you know um alligators for example which are uh, somewhat ironically are uh closer related to birds than they are to other lizards um you know they they're obviously extremely efficient killing machines and you know they they have great abilities to of stealth they can sit under water cloaked for a long time extremely powerful jaws all of these things make their survival very easy for them and for that reason they really haven't evolved very much from their predecessors so same with the great white shark for example these are things some some species are just so good at what they do they never had to evolve uh, or at least not much and others changed drastically because they struggled probably for a long time but they had one trade that just you know was just enough to keep them going and uh the the genes kept passing down passing down and then they became emphasized and then they grew and became more prominent and such and so forth and uh, that's just how, how it works. And some, you know, we can call it luck to a degree because they, you know, through through the natural processes of life, we, we, you know, they found themselves in an area that was conducive to the traits that they had and allowed them to survive. What gave them those and traits? Because you said they luck, just, you said luck. Of the these people. were traits that they had, and they and more more specifically, uh, because and that's what I was saying before. Some species have them, and they're wow. prominent. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm perfectly okay with saying I don't know, but for whatever reason, if we could trace it down and actually watch them, I'm sure we could see that. But we don't have that ability yet. But. Uh, I mean, if 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 it just comes down to we're doubting it because we don't know how they happen to fall into, you know, uh, the uh, the cheetah happened to live in Africa in a certain part of the desert. You know, I mean, they're they're a vicious cat, but the cheetah is actually uh, on the brink of extinction because they're only they're the only member of their species. Cheetahs can only breed with other cheetahs, for example. Um uh, you know, much like your your lions can only breed with lions, but they can technically breed with tigers, and you get your ligers, but they become a an infertile, uh, uh, mentally retarded version of the you know called the liger, kind of like the same way a horse and donkey can make a mule, same sort of deal. 
but uh, cheetahs can't seem to diverge at all. Like they're they're locked into they can only breed with cheetahs uh, at least for the time being. If they can last long enough, and you know, like say for example, I'll give you a hypothetical based on that. That's kind of an interesting thought experiment, and I could be totally way off base, but I'm sort of shooting from the hip here. If if we took uh, one set of cheetahs and like say we helped them along we took a hundred of them or 200 of them and we stuck them in a completely different area of the world maybe somewhere i don't know i don't know well, great don't mike know. you're violating the prime directive here what's that you're <laughs> violating the prime directive here it's like, oh, all right go mike, ahead. mike I- I don't I don't think I don't think we need to be in disagreement on this point. Um where I'm trying to go with this is uh, to say that uh usually the explanation that I'm given uh and I would even agree with it for why one uh you know why some organisms have traits that other organisms don't is it's basically just cuz that is how their genetic code uh you know came about and so the changes are due to you know either copying errors mutations whatever that happened in there that that obviously you know you don't have traits without your genome so whatever your traits are that you have that is in some way going to be reducible to you know your dna and uh, you know your rna and your epigenetic information that genetic information that is what gives you your traits so any differences that you have any survivability traits Ultimately, that is going to be reducible to changes in the genome, and I think I think we could agree on that point. Sure, but okay, think of it. Think of it this way: somewhere in you exists the genetic information for a tail. Okay, mm-hmm. you, we, we are apes to every extent that we know of genetically, and because of that in us is the same information that has existed in all other apes uh, before us. Some of them became more the traditional monkeys that have tails, and those tails are essential to those monkeys' survival. They need them for the tree, you know, swinging through trees and stuff, and others have tails that are still there but are completely vestigial. They don't even use them, but some of them require them. If I, I don't know of, of an example of any reason why we might suddenly regrow our tails for any reason, but you know, if it, if it ever came down to it, I totally forgot, lost where I was going. <laughs> it's okay. I was talking about King Kong just a minute ago, and yeah. <laughs> I had a point. I swear, I had a point. Well, Mike, <laughs> The argument that I'm wanting to make is that no known genetic process, no known explanation for the reasons why there are uh, changes in DNA, right? The reasons why my DNA is different from the DNA of my parents, no known um, mechanism for that is sufficient to accomplish the kind of change that you would need for a common descent. So that, that's where I think the disagreement is going to happen, is that you think that whatever is accounting for these differences, that is sufficient to account for common descent. And I'm, I'm going to be arguing that it's not. Right? I, I don't think we need to argue about that these differences exist or that, you know, in some cases they get chosen by natural selection. I agree that they do. Natural selection absolutely does act on changes in our uh, DNA and our traits and even, you know, for the purpose of survivability. I'm OK with that. What I'm saying is that is not enough to get you the kind of change that you are going to need for a common descent. 
And let's go that route because, you know, I've already learned a lot from Mike here, and he's been giving me a lecture the last couple, uh, the last thirty minutes here. So let's let, let's go that direction. Let, let's go let's go uh, David's route, Mike. Try to speak to that specifically. Right. Why do you think that the changes that occur in our genomes are sufficient to account for all of the diversity that we have in uh, in life? Say that for me one more time, so I can. I'm, I'm not sure if I fully understood your question. Yeah. Why do you think that the mechanisms that are changing uh, our genomes, right, so that we have the differences that can be selected by natural selection, we agree on that. Why do you think that that process is sufficient to account for all of the complexity in life? Because uh, basically all the evidence shows that it has been. Uh, so, then let's, let's talk about some of that. What would be a, a piece of evidence that shows that, um, that, this, that any of these sort of processes have the, uh, the power to get these sort of large-scale changes that you're going to need? Well, because we – okay – by the way, kudos to you for a moment, uh, and I apologize if I've been lecturing. But no, I like... lecturing is good, dude. Especially okay. in these type of baits, you need to lay that groundwork, that 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 uh, foundation, Mike. I mean, that's 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 crucial. I mean, when I said I learned a lot, I mean I learned a lot from you. Okay, the good. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. Um, I was about to say kudos for not having yet thrown out the words macroevolution and microevolution. Um, but I feel like that's kind of where this conversation is segueing into and, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, if do you, do you not subscribe to the whole macro micro separation? I mean, macro is just micro extended over time. So I get that. Um, and I agree that there are small changes that happen. Uh, but my issue is that the processes that are proposed for this change, uh, they don't seem to be able to to do that. So uh, okay, it's usually it's usually like uh, mutations, for example, right, uh, are thrown out there uh, that these mistakes that happen. Occasionally, you get a good one, and then natural selection preserves those good mistakes, and that that is how progress happens. That, that's how it's normally presented to me. Uh, and the problem is that it, that usually happens at a cost that's like way too high. So when these sorts of mistakes happen, you've got things getting broken as well. So yeah, sometimes these positive mutations they can they can benefit an organism, but sometimes it's at it's at a really big cost to that organism. And so well, it depends. I mean, not not all changes are costly to them. Like they're and, and I don't even know the mechanism by which. Uh, this would occur, but the one example that comes to mind is there's a particular insect whose name is... Uh, right, Manus. Uh, no, but... Um, <laughs> the, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just teasing, guys. I, uh, I'm trying to break, keep the ice broken here so we yeah. can have fun. <laughs> this, this particular insect has, has evolved the ability to digest uh, certain types of fabric that, that didn't exist. Nylon. Yes, thank you. Uh, and, you know... Obviously, if it can, it, it couldn't digest nylon before, and then it, you know, all of a sudden we invent it, and now it all of a sudden has the ability to do that, and that allows it to survive. It, Until you get mothballs. Right. <laughs> I was just, I'm totally kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but that's an example of it. And 
uh, to go back to the micro macro thing to to suggest, okay, you, you agree that small changes over time occur. Now from if we eliminate, pardon me, if we eliminate the evolution discussion for a moment and talk from a strictly logical perspective, do you un, do you accept that small changes can accumulate and build up to large changes over time? Like if I if I leave my home and I travel a small distance and then I travel another small distance and another small distance, eventually, if I do that enough times, I will have traveled a large distance from home. Yeah, I mean, large er, large distance is going to be that's a relative term. So yeah, sure, it could be, be large in res, like with respect to what a smaller mutation could do. But like, could you ever walk from? Uh, you know, from your house to the sun. No, you don't have the capabilities to do that. Your uh, your mechanisms for travel are too limited to ever get you, you know, to the moon through walking. Through the process of walking, you could never make it to the moon. Like, let's just yeah, because it. you're dealing with a vacuum of space. But yeah, let, let's <laughs> take, unless you have transporters. As as we know, what what has been shown is that because of our evolving minds we have developed the intellect to create technology that has aided us in the ability to go to the moon yeah so we can travel to the moon even if it's not walking to the moon nah, guys that was fake this is a really good example just... here um this is a good example uh because um i want to agree with that yes uh that these small changes maybe you could lead to a different sort of change but here we're not talking about walking anymore now we're talking about a totally different type of transportation so um you know uh transporting that back into biology then so yeah little changes happen but these seem too limited to me to accomplish the sort of change that um you wanted i did want to address that nylon example um but okay but 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 would you? Sorry if I'm interrupting. No no you're fine. Um, but I want I want to focus on this point. Something like okay, I'll go back to dogs. You have your wolf. We know that dogs delineated from wolves. We know that for a fact. We did it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the um, Alaskan huskies, for example, they still appear very wolf-like. You might look at the wolf and the husky and say that there is a small difference between them, even if it's a relative understanding based purely on uh, superficial <laughs> observations. You, you could look at them and say they're clearly related. Uh, and some people might even mistake a husky for a wolf if they didn't know any better. But you then look at a chihuahua and a wolf. It's a rat. <laughs> yeah. And you would say that that is a significant, large, to use the phrase in this context, that would be a large derivation change from the wolf that we know it came from, right? And this is this is completely deliberate. Like, we know that that chihuahua came from that wolf, yeah. right? But do they really count? Because chihuahuas can only come from one region in the world. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. So that is – uh, go ahead. The thing with that is that, um, yeah, we know that you can get a lot of variation within uh, a particular sort of species. So, you know, uh, existing species change over time. You get a lot of variation in them, and I don't dispute that. 
Uh, but in order for evolution to work, in order for this mechanism that uh, is being proposed, for that to work, uh, you can't just get variation within existing species. You have to get two new species. And the way to do that is you have to, at some point, have something that can give new, um, fundamentally new abilities to something. And uh, not just optimization of pre-existing abilities. So you can have an optimization of a pre-existing ability, right? Like a dog has legs. Well, the legs can get longer, and now the dog can, you know, reach the food that's on the table or something like that. So we know that you can have an ability that is optimized. But evolution has to be able to build new abilities into it. And if it can't do that, then we've got a problem. And this is why the nylon example... I just gave you an example. Well, the nylon... I just gave you an example of species. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's, why, that's a new ability. Yeah, and that, that's why I wanted to address that because uh, that that is a good one because it's uh, if it works, then this at least um, gives us some evidence that maybe maybe this does have the ability to account for giving um, a new a new function to something or giving it a new ability. And so here's mm -hmm. why I don't find the bacteria example to be particularly uh, compelling, and that's because we know that the cousin enzymes of these nylon-eating bacteria, they they already have a weak nylonese ability. So they have, uh, you know, a little bit of an ability to eat nylon, right? Not not as much as, um, as their uh, evolved descendants could, but they had a little bit of ability for it. And so it took just two mutations to, um, to really, you know, bring that to, um, to bring that to where it got, right? To where it could, uh, eat full-on nylon, so uh, it just took two, mu two mutations to get there. And so that's not really observing uh, the creation of a new function, that is uh, observing the optimization of a pre-existing function. And so that's why I don't think this actually gives mm. evidence that uh, you have, uh, that, that mutations can get you new abilities. Uh, it shows that they can optimize pre-existing abilities, but not that they can get you new ones. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess if digestion is a pre-existing ability, then yeah, you can say that it optimized the ability, but... Depends you know, on what hole it's there, coming there out isn't of, right? Another, what's that? <laughs> Depends <laughs> on what hole it's coming out of, right? <laughs> I'm totally kidding. I'm sorry, guys. I, I have to break the ice every once in a while. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not doing my hostly duties. <laughs> um but something one. like that. Especially if, you, especially if you eat tacos. You are such a dad. From Taco Bell. You're such a dad. I am. I am, but Mike is too. You're the only single guy here. I'm proud of it. Or the only only undad here. The only non-dad here. Okay, I mean, <laughs> oh, I can take that. I mean, not, uh, not, not that you know un, of. Russell. I say undad. Hey, <laughs> I'm not exploring your sin here, all right? You're already a heretic, all right? So, but uh, no, no, I mean, I like undead, un undad because it sounds like undead, and I'm, I really like the walking dead. So. But anyways, Mike, go ahead. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. What was I talking about? <laughs> we were discussing nylon-eating bacteria, although, although I think you did want to get into um... – genetic similarities between humans and chimps because when you were last on the show you talked about uh human chromosome two was it you brought that up uh, so yeah. you might want to take the conversation that direction and if you do then i'm happy to have that conversation but yeah if you if you <laughs> want to give a response on the nylon eating bacteria please go ahead um uh, huh i totally got you with the diarrhea thing dude yeah <laughs> <laughs> you broke his train of thought. Totally. 
I'm just derailed here at the moment. Uh, <laughs> oh. Dad joke time. <laughs> so, man, Happy Thanksgiving. I really don't want to. I don't want to jump track from what we were talking about because I felt like that was uh, interesting. Oh yeah, the um, yeah digestion is a natural process. So yeah, obviously we're building on a a, a, a um, bodily function that, uh, you know, already exists, but, you know, you're talking about, did it really, you know, I mean, we don't really know the specifics of it, or maybe we do, and I just don't know the specifics of it, but, it was, uh, it was two point mutations, two point mutations gave it the ability to, uh, full on eat nylon. Yeah. And I mean, that would, all that would mean is the, from the first time it decided to eat the nylon, it didn't die from it and then it eventually continued to eat it and eventually and ultimately developed the ability to process it and now it is used as actual nourishment for it right so you know i mean there are there are animals like the koala eats just ungodly amounts of eucalyptus all day every day yeah, or and the panda too. Uh, uh, what is the uh, bamboo? Right? They they just literally sit there and eat this stuff all day long because it provides so little energy for them for their massive bodies. Uh, speaking of the panda, um, and they they just sit there and munch and graze and and these things like provide so little energy and yet that is their primary food source. Uh, and they they have to because uh, you know they're their their size requires them to have that much energy that to me if you're talking about a design process uh would be pretty bad design so you know it's like why would we doom these poor animals who are effectively very cute looking and 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 fun to look at but they have to spend their whole day basically just eating to survive they they almost serve no other purpose it's one of the things that's so frustrating about the damn panda, and then they won't screw to save their own species because they're so busy eating, uh, you know, among other things, uh, on top of being in captivity, stuff like that. But Absolutely. Uh, then you got mosquitoes who are just buttheads, dude. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they just they just serve to kill populations of things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, yeah. The, 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 talk about the design of the mosquito. It's like, yeah, they they survive on other things, blood, but. But then they effectively, because of their design, if we were to call it that, and if their whole process in life was deliberate, then whatever designed it to do that knew that it would carry things like diseases and things like that to other species like us. Uh, mosquitoes carry uh, malaria in countries because of mosquitoes is one of the primary causes of illness and death. Because uh, they just don't have things like something as simple as mosquito nets to protect them. Uh, this is this would be considered a horrible flaw in design, and that's not with and that's without even getting into the basic stuff like the giraffe, for example, whose neck uh, has a very vital vein that starts up here, goes it 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 starts and ends like an inch. From where it's, it ends in like an inch away from where it starts, and it could easily just connect here. But instead, it goes all the way down and all the way back up again. 
And if that vein were ever to get severed, it would be instant death for this poor creature. There's no earthly reason, no designed reason for it to do that. It literally could just go boop. And that would be an interesting thing to point to, but it doesn't. It goes all the way down and all the way back up again. It's one of the things that shows us that the uh, the long neck of the giraffe is an, an evolution process. Things like that. All right, so, yeah, the bad design argument. Um, these arguments, I think, are problematic for a number of reasons, uh, mostly because they kind of operate on the premise of, oh, I wouldn't have designed it that way. Um, first, and I think most fundamentally, bad design is still design, uh, even if, you know, I mean, I don't know how many times I've dealt with something and I'm like, uh, oh, this is, like, so poorly designed. Why would they design it this way? Uh, this is awful. This is terrible. They should have designed it some other way. Well, that may be true, and, you know, you can talk about that, but um, that in no way counts against it being designed. It's just a great well, about that I don't think it should be designed no. that way. Then okay, I'm going to gonna interrupt you. I'm going to interrupt you. Okay. The, the problem here is that it, it's not so much was it designed, wasn't it designed. It's that if it was, you're talking about something as complicated as life. Y you would like to think at least, and particularly among those people who claim that, uh, who automatically jump to said creator was God, and God is perfect. Uh, I don't know if you are particularly among the God is perfect uh, people, but the perfection argument, uh, or position rather, um, is, an, a, is almost a, a, a deal breaker, because immediately that means that there's no earthly reason why we, in our flawed mortal state, should ever come up uh, with a, a way to more optimize the design that we have. I'm not saying that we're coming up with reasons why life is imperfect, but it is inoptimal, especially when you're talking about survival. And something like the giraffe having the giant vein, or you know, even the way our eyes work, or the the uh, when you're talking about humans alone, the fact that we have a breathing tube and an eating tube right next to each other that can so easily get lost. They're terribly inefficient and inoptimal uh, characteristics. Yeah, so, you know it. You know it frequently happens to me. <laughs> but <laughs> let me let, let's let's rough. let Dave. <laughs> Right. Uh, I even choke on yams. <laughs> um, let's let's let David answer that because we're we're getting close to the time here. We got to wrap up. So I'm going to let David answer that. Then, Mike, I want you to give a, a, a quick close uh, and then, David, I want you to give your quick close and then we'll uh, we'll just draw it to an end there. And uh, me and David uh, will discuss a little bit about what's coming up next. So, uh, yeah, David, uh, uh, I'll let you. Give that answer there, and then, Mike, you, you can go with your closing statement. All right, yeah, so Michael raised a good question there, or a good – an interesting point there, and uh, I will get to that. But uh, the minimal point I was trying to make with that is you don't get out of explaining design by appealing to allegedly bad design because bad design still is design. So you still have to give an explanation for design 
even if uh, the design is, oh, it's just, oh, I wouldn't have done it that way. So my point is that the design argument as such still holds even if there is, even if the design is poor. Now, the second point is I think this argument assumes that there is such a thing as optimal design, and I don't believe that that is the case. Uh, because, you know, what determines what is optimal? Take uh, an example like a laptop computer. Uh, a laptop computer isn't more optimal if it um, if it's you know small and portable, but then you can't see what's on it as well. Or maybe it's bigger. If, if it's bigger, I can see it better, but then uh, it's it, I lose on the portability, right? Or uh, if it uh, stores more information, then you know in a way that's good. But then maybe the price goes up, so it they make it with you know. Uh, a smaller amount of information it can store, uh, and so that way the price on it goes down. So in design, there's these things known as trade-offs, and uh, I mean engineers are familiar with these. Uh, it's just that sometimes you have to give up in one area to get a benefit in another area, and I, we often see that in um, nature. And so a lot of these uh, alleged examples of poor design can be explained in that way. There just simply isn't such a thing as optimal design. In any, for any benefit, there's often going to be a loss in another area. Finally, uh, intelligent design is perfectly compatible with the idea that deterioration happens, right? Uh, something that is designed and it deteriorates over time and uh, develops problems and issues, that in no way takes away from the fact that it was at one point designed. Think of like a rusted out car. Uh, you know, you wouldn't design a car being all rusted out. But deterioration, mutations, cancer stuff, all of this happens. You know, mistakes happen even in computer systems. But that doesn't mean that they weren't designed at one point. So that's kind of my threefold response to the um, poor design argument. All right, Mike, you're closing here, my friend. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll begin by kind of addressing that, and I'll try to make it brief. But, um, okay, when, first of all, okay, the first thing you mentioned was uh, bad design versus good design. Even bad design is still design. Sure, um, but there's no reason to believe that that's what happened. Uh, the evidence doesn't point that way, and... There's, uh, if, if all we're, if, if all you can point to is it looks like design to me, it's not sufficient, uh, to call it design. And, um, even when we're talking about, uh, the, it's the fact that it is bad design and we would, we, I, I, I would think that we, you know, from, if we were talking about a designer, uh, even, even a non-omnipotent one, uh, like say alien life seeded human life here or all life uh, rather on this planet um, and and then went away you know that is a uh, alternative theory to creationism it basically is creationism uh, except it just changes the source yeah different creator um, you know that it's on the table uh, but it still doesn't point to it and we would I, I would think that if if the life on this planet were in any way designed, it would be a little more thought out. And especially when you're talking about something, you know, I mean, we are flawed to our extent. We, you know, we're, we're not, we can't create life as it is. We can sort of, we're kind of on the cusp of, uh, of manipulating life to a certain extent, but we, we, we can't start from anywhere. And yet we can still look at things and say, uh, and this will go into the next point. You're talking when you were talking about optimability. 
your your understanding of optimi- of optimalness is a little bit flawed uh, because what makes something optimal is the choices that were made based on what uh, it was meant to do, and it, it's kind of the it, it sort of goes into the objectivity of morality in a way where. Uh, morality can even be objective once you have a goal in mind. But without the goal, there is no good or bad. It's completely subjective up to that point. Uh, but I don't want to get off on that tangent. The, uh, that's a whole other no, a whole other topic. <laughs> that's a completely different topic. <laughs> uh, when you're talking about optimi- optimability, something like, okay, here's the human body. We want it to live. Uh that first and foremost. So what would be the best thing? You know, would who, who designs to have the airway and the food way, which has the airway that can easily be blocked and does many people, many thousand millions of people have choked to death simply because the wrong thing went down the wrong tube. Uh, that is immediately, I, I actually am a designer to an extent. I, I was a web designer for a while, and, and even my cursory uh, ability to design web pages for optimability, which is, you know, when you're talking about something as simple as that, uh, you're talking about the purpose is for people to find the information that they're looking for as quickly as possible. And if once you have that goal, then you can objectively decide what is good and bad ways to do that. For humans, if surviving is the thing, is the goal, then that is bad design. Period, end of story. And that's just one example. And, when you, and then you talk about things like our proneness to illness. I mean, our bodies are extremely fragile. We can't take serious trauma. We, you know, cancer is not something that you catch. You know, it just happens to you. Uh, these are just a few small but serious examples. These are would be serious design flaws for our bodies, and yet they happen all the time. So these are these are uh, you know big big problematic areas when we get into the area of design, and then they're even worse once they when people again when people start talking about God and God being perfect and the perfect designer and things like that. Uh, but even things that are non-fatal, the fact that our eyes actually see things upside down and our brains have to work overtime to process that image and flip them around. Uh, that's bad design. Why did, why, why is that happen? The evolution of it accounts for all of that. Uh, we, we understand why the right eye is processed by the left side of the brain and the left eye is processed by the right side of the brain. They cross. There's no reason for a design to do that, do it that way. These are just small examples. So they, these are all, all the key reasons why uh, evolution, and especially when you actually go through the process and learn what evolution is and why it says what it says, uh, it, it accounts for everything in a much finer way than the assertion of, of a designer. Yeah, and I just want to say that there's no upside down in space, Mike. So just, just keep that in mind. It's well, good thing da- we're not in space. There's also- All right, well, David, uh, closing remarks for David. Well, I would just say on the one example of uh, the eye, well, first of all, nobody's ever proposed a model that um, – no one's ever proposed a model of the eye that uh, would have it work any better without uh, – having severe limitations either like in the area of resolution or uh 
in the, like the the width of vision so there would be other problems in any other proposed model for that so that would go back to trade-offs uh but the irony i was want to point that's out true, but... the, the irony i want to point out with this is that um the people who complain about the eye uh and talk about how badly designed it is um are nonetheless using the eye to arrive at these criticisms so however badly designed the eye may or may not be it is obviously designed well enough to tell you about itself. So, uh, you know, you study the eye by means of the eye, and so it is good enough to do what it's intended for. Uh, you know, now, is that an argument for design? I would argue for it on other grounds, but that that's just an interesting point I want to bring up, and I'm happy to rest the case there. Uh, if I can briefly bring up one more example before we go, uh, this just came to my mind. Uh, our, what about the difference between our lungs, like human lungs are very inefficient. So are other modern apes. When we, when we breathe oxygen, we expel uh, quite a bit of oxygen as well, uh, as well, among other things. But avian lungs, bird lungs, for example, are extremely efficient. They use everything they breathe in. They almost don't have to exhale at all. They, they breathe in everything, they use 100% of it, and then it's dispelled. So we know that we we have examples of lungs that are optimally uh, functional, and yet we don't have them. And there's no reason for us not to have them, being that they're optimally functional for I, the purposes of breathing. So there's you know that's a that's a huge discrepancy. Why would you know there there's no reason for us to not have the same lung capacity? Well, I got a reason for that is because I don't know if you've ever seen birds. But I think God just didn't want us to get high off the oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, birds are high, dude. They they fly straight into to windows and kill themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's actually. Anyways, yeah. David, I, I'm gonna. All right, man. Uh, we gotta close out, man. All right, yeah. Sure. I'll say that that is not an argument that I've heard before, so I would be interested to look into that. But uh, just off the cuff, what my uh, initial responses are is: first of all, uh, it seems to me our lungs are good enough for what we need them to do. So um, good enough isn't optimal. Okay, but again, I don't believe there's such a thing as optimal design. I just I think that well. I think they are good enough for what we do, <laughs> and I I don't see why there needs to be a reason for why uh, they need to be as efficient as a bird, who obviously does need it to be. And then in the second place, I mean, again, intelligent design allows for deterioration. So you could theorize that at one point human lungs were optimal, and that you know through. Uh, you know, uh, just uh, genetic entropy and uh, other deterioration processes on the genome, then you lost some efficiency there. I mean, yeah, we know that that happens. Uh, it's just uh, that is not a problem for uh, the intelligent design hypothesis. All right. Well, that 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 looks like the close there. Uh, is that all you had to say, David? Is that that the close there? Yeah, that's all I was going to say on the debate. Awesome. Well, guys, you know, this has been real fun. You know, I, I tried to make it funny. I tried to, to jump in there and, and give you all some comic relief there. But, you know, it's Thanksgiving, and, and there is one thing I did want to do is that, you know, I'm thankful for the show. I'm thankful for people like Mike that come on here and, and, and engage with us, and I'm definitely thankful for David taking the role of co-host and, and actually helping me out and, and growing this channel with me. So I am thankful for all that stuff. I'm not thankful for COVID. 
No. But I, thanks and everything. Uh, but I am, but, but I am thankful for stuff like this and, and fun conversations like this. And and if you guys just want to go through and, and just say what you're thankful for, I'm thankful for my kids as well and my and my family and my and my studio here, my my whole house. So I am thankful for all that stuff. Uh, Mike, what are you thankful for, man? Um, mostly my family. Um, without my family, I'd probably be on the streets right now and. Uh, so uh all my thanks go to my family and everyone that keeps me alive keep me going and god no i'm just joking uh, <laughs> uh david what are you thankful for bud uh too much to list but uh yeah of course family uh thankful for my church thankful for my school thankful for my library thankful for my dog uh, really just uh, thankful to have a job that I've been able to work through COVID. That is a blessing. Uh, especially thankful to God for my salvation, and there's just so much to, to be thankful for. Yeah, except for that new computer that you should be saving up for. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, again you know yeah we're all thankful for our families and, and you know that's a big deal family's a big deal we are social creatures but everybody this has been great this has been fun thanks guys for coming on thanks guys for this talk this has been a real fun one uh so uh and i've learned a lot so this has been great uh until next time guys we got some fun stuff in december coming up uh we're actually gonna uh i'm gonna combine a couple shows on the second show i'm with uh skeptics and seekers we're actually gonna get some guys in and, and have a christmas special and on uh this show, we're going to have the Mentionables, and we're going to do a Christmas special with them. So that's coming up in December. Again, me and David are going to go at it. And we also have an argument for the resurrection uh, coming up in December. So stay tuned. There's a lot more stuff coming. Uh, and thank you guys. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Enjoy. It was fun. You guys stay awesome. <laughs>